Amen. If you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 to 26. Last week we began a section of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus, as the king of a kingdom, he gives freely to the poor and needy, to those who trust in him. Uh, Jesus begins to describe uh, his kingdom righteousness, his his view of God's law, uh, how his people are called to live in light of his grace. We saw that Jesus says, and back yes, last week, if you weren't with us, verses 17 to 20, Jesus says, I came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And then he says, my disciples then are to keep it and to teach it. Then, over the rest of the chapter, he gives six illustrations of what he's talking about. Here we encounter the first one at verse 21, where he turns us our attention to the sixth commandment against murder. And we are to keep this law. We are not to commit murder. That would be wrong. I could probably get everybody in agreement on that one. I suspect many of us here would ask, is there anyone here who has broken this command, who has committed murder. It it may be. You need not stand and confess it now. But how does this really apply to us if we haven't shot or stabbed or poisoned or in some other way done off with somebody else? That's what we want to think about because Jesus teaches it. And so let me invite you to consider this from Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Amen. This is God's word. May he cut our hearts with it. Let's pray together. Father, thank you. For your word. And Jesus, just as you once taught it long ago in this sermon, I pray that you would be our teacher this day. Give us ears to hear, eyes to see, because of your grace and mercy. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You shall not commit murder, says Jesus. And you can kill people just as truly Not just with your hand, but with your heart and with your mouth. 
Anger is murder, he says. Insults are murder. I wonder if Agatha Christie had this on her mind when she put in the words of her famous detective, Hercule Perrault, uh, when he was lecturing his friend Hastings um, about how you figure out who done it. Now you must realize, Hastings, everyone is a potential murderer. In everyone there arises from time to time the wish to kill. How often have you not felt or, or heard others say, she made me so furious I could have killed her. Or I was so angry I could have murdered him. And all those statements are literally true. Your mind at such moments is quite clear. You would like to kill so-and-so. Perot is just echo, uh, echoing Jesus here. Jesus looks into our hearts and he says, that's where God looks. And what God sees is we are all murderers. And so Jesus in here in this passage is, is going to preach on that. And he's going to pastor us about that. And so I want you to think about these things. And I want to do it in three parts. In the first place, I want you to see his method. I want you to see his approach to the law so that you'll, be, so that you'll believe that this is actually for you. Secondly, I want you to see his explanation of it at verse 22. And then his application. And there, there's multiple applications across verses 23 to 26. But in the first place, just I mean, notice... His method at verse 21, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Verse 22, but I say to you. Now, what's Jesus doing? Well, uh, in the first place, Jesus is just saying, on my own authority, I'm telling you what it really means. I'm not just going to rely on what people have said in the past. I tell you, this is what it means. You should, my disciples, you should learn from me. Listen to me. This is my teaching for you. Now, some people have, and very well-meaning Christians have, mistakenly thought Jesus is setting himself up here against Moses and the law of God given at Sinai on the tablets of stone. As though Jesus is uh, contrasting himself with the Ten Commandments or even contradicting the Ten Commandments. And I simply want to give a few reasons why that can't possibly be the case. First, Jesus has already said back at verses 17 to 20, he came not to abolish the law but to fulfill it. He said not an iota, not a tittle. In other words, not the smallest letter or even the least stroke of a pen you know, is going to disappear from the law. He can't then be overturning the law or changing the law or contradicting it. He'd be contradicting himself. But second, this expression, you have heard that it was said, but I tell you, the expression you have heard that it was said is not his usual way of speaking about things the Old Testament law or Torah says. He'd normally say, it is written. Have you not read in the Torah, in the law, right? Here, he's quoting not so much the law, but quoting the explanations of the law given by the traditions of men. And they were wrong. He's saying, look, I'm not taking issue with Moses. I'm taking issue with the interpreters of Moses. I'm not contradicting Moses. I'm saving Moses from the false teachers who contradicted Moses. Now, it's, it's 
easier and harder to see that in the six illustrations he gives about anger and lust and divorce and oath-taking and loving your neighbor and retaliation, um, depending upon which one you're looking at. Because sometimes he simply does just quote the Old Testament law. And then he goes on to explain it. Uh, Verse 27, where it says, you shall not commit adultery. He just quotes it. But some of his examples do contradict the law as taught by the scribes and Pharisees. For instance, at verse 43, the law does say, you shall love your neighbor. And he'll say, you have heard that it is said, you shall love your neighbor. True enough. Absolutely true. That's the Old Testament. But it never said, and you shall hate your enemy. But that's what the scribes and Pharisees were saying. That's what the people had heard them saying. So he's not arguing against God's moral law, but he's arguing against false interpretations of it, false additions to it. And they had made, these scribes and Pharisees had made an enormous mistake and then passed it on to the people. That the law against murder was only about the actual act of taking blood. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. The law was always truly about all the ways a person can murder. Sure, with the hand, but also with the attitude, also with the words. Jesus drives home the internal necessity of neighbor love, of a a loving heart. In contrast to the superficial, skin-deep righteousness taught by the Pharisees of that day who said, well, you could say I'm not a murderer because I just hadn't actually physically killed anybody. I've kept the law. Jesus says, if you say I'm not a murderer, I've never spilled blood, you've walked down the path of the Pharisees, not the path of Jesus. So Jesus isn't correcting the law here because there was never anything wrong with the law that ever needed correction. Right? That's why there are times in the Gospels where Jesus, in, with, when confronting somebody um, who wanted to get to heaven by their good works, what must I do, they'll say, to inherit eternal life? Jesus will lay out for them the commandments and basically say, have you done them? Why? Because if you really did the commandments from the heart perfectly, heaven is yours. You wouldn't be barred if you're perfect. In other words, if you kept the commandments, you get to go to heaven. See, Jesus doesn't have to say, if you, have you kept the commandments and, oh, by the way, um, my new changed view of them. He doesn't have to do that. Because this was always the view of the commandments, though not regularly properly understood. So Jesus isn't here teaching that you could get to heaven by your good works or by law keeping. He's not teaching the law so that if you obey, you can get into the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven belongs to who? His first beatitude, the poor in spirit, the spiritually destitute, beggars who simply must receive the kingdom. And so the law is not a ladder, as we said, by which you climb your way into heaven by your obedience. The law is instead a window through which you see the glory and perfection of your Father in heaven who never commits unjust, premeditated, wrathful murder of somebody who doesn't deserve 
judicial execution. The law is a mirror to show you the filth of your own heart. The law is a billboard then saying, flee to Jesus to be saved. The law is a tutor to take you by the hand, to lead you to the Savior. He is the righteous one by whom alone we can be righteous before God. That's justification. I get all my righteousness from him. You can tell me the truth about me. It's okay. I'm in Jesus and I'm righteous. It's not okay that I'm wrong. It's not okay that I'm sinful. But you can tell me the truth about me because all my righteousness is Christ. Do you know the relief of that? But then what is Jesus doing then? Pointing his disciples to the law and saying you need to obey it. Well, the law then becomes a guide to life for believers. The law says here's what love for God looks like. The first four commandments. Here's what love for neighbor looks like. Commandments 5 to 10. Love fulfills the law. And Jesus not only fulfilled the law for us, Jesus fulfills the law in us. He works in us. He not only forgives us, he changes us. He comes to us by his spirit. He gives us a new heart. He puts the law on our hearts and he teaches us to love what he loves. Now, I've still got a messed up heart. I've still got the remnants of sin. I've got a guerrilla war going on in my heart. I've begun to love the right things, and yet I find at times I love the wrong things. I'm not yet what I will be in heaven, but I am not yet not what I once was. I'm truly changed. Do you know the power of him and by his spirit working in you to begin to obey the law of God? If you love Jesus for dying for your sins, then a grateful heart says, Lord, help me to walk in your ways. Because Christian freedom is not the freedom from obedience. It's freedom for obedience. It's not freedom to walk against the law of God. It's freedom to walk in accordance with the law of God. I mean, after all, it's not freedom for you to be able to say, I'm forgiven. I can commit murder. That's absurd. It's freedom that you might learn to love even your enemy. So the gospel frees us from the fear of condemnation. There's no condemnation for those who are in Jesus. And it frees us to the loving, willing obedience of children to a heavenly father who is full of love. Who is love. Do you know even the beginnings of that in your experience? We could say it this way. You're not a disciple, a Christian. You're not following Jesus. You can't claim the grace of God if you don't have a heart that's been changed by that grace. Grateful. Longing to obey. Aiming at it. However imperfectly in this life. That's the first thing I want you to see. Jesus' approach to the law Then I want you to see the three examples he gives about committing murder here or what the law forbids. And the first is anger, right? You have heard that it was said, verse 21, to those of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Now, immediately, some of you may be asking... I mean, is anger always wrong? Is there no place whatsoever for moral, righteous indignation? And we would say, well, yes, there is. 
I mean, Jesus himself got angry with sin. He threw the money changers out of the temple because of their trade that kept Gentiles from praying to God. Jesus got hot with anger at his own disciples when his disciples kept moms and dads of even infants away from Jesus and not letting them bring their children to Jesus to be blessed by him. (laughs) But Jesus was always, of course, slow to anger, and he was always righteous in his anger. And so there is such a thing as righteous anger. And there is also such a thing as unrighteous anger, which I suspect many of us know much more about. And Jesus is talking here certainly about unrighteous anger, heart murder. Why do we think that's not such a big deal? Why do we give ourselves permission? A lady once came to the evangelist Billy Sunday. She tried to rationalize her angry outbursts, saying, there's nothing wrong with losing my temper. I blow up and then it's all over. So does a shotgun, said Sunday. And look at the damage it leaves behind. The Apostle John says, anyone who hates his brother is a murderer. Murder is a crime not just of the hand, but of the heart. Now, the second and third examples after anger have to do with our words. The first, uh, about uh, both are insults. Uh, you know, maybe some of you do. I don't know what goes on on playgrounds these days, but when I was a kid, you know, the, the playground comeback for a name caller, right, was sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me, which is utterly untrue, of course, right? Uh, we're just masking the, the anguish of our own hearts at times because words do cut to the core. Jesus says our words about others may be murderous. Whoever, he says, insults his brother will be liable to the council. Insult here is the word raka. It's hard to translate. It's a, it's a term of contempt, certainly. Something like brainless idiot or nitwit, bonehead, stupid. The next example is whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Fool means something more than uh, dumb, intellectually empty. It, It has moral connotations. You're actually impugning the character. You're calling somebody a scoundrel. You're saying um, this, this person is a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad human being. Uh, you may be telling others, that person is a jerk, or she can't be trusted. She's, she's horrible. And so you, you're trashing their reputation. You're taking away their good name. This is some of what he's getting at here. What do you say about other people? I went on a pastor's retreat just like two weeks ago. 35 men whom I respect. We were all in it together. And on the way out the door, a friend asked me about so-and-so. I, I can't say much. Nobody here. And I gave, I, I gave a diplomatic answer. It was a thing of gold. And he said, oh, 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 you're just like, and then he named a person we all respect who's also very diplomatic. And I was like, yeah, I'm kind of just, you know, glossing over. And then I went for it. 
And I said horrible things about a fellow minister. I mean, I just told him what I thought. It was just wicked and, and terrible. What do you say about people? <laughs> what kinds of insults? What kinds of ways do you run people down? Can you be trusted with uh, other people's reputations? This is what Jesus is getting at. Um, George Beverly Shea um, sang for all those decades with Billy Graham. He was always known for his kindness to others. And when he was asked about it, he said, well, I learned it from my mother. She, was, she never criticized anybody. And uh, one day, he says, when we were young, my sister Lois said, have you noticed mother never speaks ill of anybody? I'm going to get her tonight at the dinner table. You wait. And he said, so we waited. And at dinner, Lois said, mother, what do you think of the devil? And she came back with a reply. I sure admire his perseverance. <laughs> I mean, that may be going too far, right? But you know that there are people uh, who can be trusted with other people's reputations, right? They never say a bad word about anybody that you have ever heard. We love people like that. And in part because we find that we're not people like that. Not the way we should. These words, rock and fool, are words of contempt for people. Made in God's image. Second commandment. Why not make images? Why, why do we not have to get to, to choose to make our own physical representations of the deity? Why? In part... Because the deity has made his own physical reputations of, rep, representations of himself. People. And we tear them down and we mock his image, his likeness on earth. And that anger and those insults are symptoms of a heart that's wrong. That a heart that says... I wish they would get out of my life. Uh, A heart that's saying, I wish they were dead. And if that's our heart, Jesus says what? We are liable to hell. So much for gentle Jesus, meek and mild. Here you have Jesus, the hellfire and brimstone preacher. I mean, people say, you know, I don't like the God of the Old Testament, Mount Sinai, flames, earthquakes, thunder, uh, fear, wrath. I like the God of the New Testament, the God of love. And here Jesus is speaking more pointedly and more directly about hell than anybody else in the Bible. Somebody who says, I really like the Sermon on the Mount, but I don't like the Old Testament, probably hasn't really read the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus uses the word hell here, Gehenna. It was a place outside of Jerusalem with a horrible history. Ahaz, way back in the Old Testament, Ahaz of Israel had had introduced to the Israelites the worship of the god Molech. And Molech required child sacrifice. And so people were taught to bring their children to the valley to slaughter their children in sacrifice to Molech. Later, good King Josiah came along and he was a reformer. He called for repentance and he cursed the valley and he turned it into a trash heap where everybody brought their junk to be burned up. 
And in Jesus' day, that trash heap was still going and the flames were still going. It was full of stench. It was in use. And, and people thought it was a horrible, nasty, terrible, revulsive uh, place. And that's the image Jesus is trying to conjure up for us. He's trying to get us to see that image because the reality is far worse, whatever the reality is. Beyond this world lies the judgment of God and it is appointed for man once to die. And then the judgment. We will all meet our maker and we are all liable to the pains of hell. And it's right. But it sometimes takes sort of the worst examples for us to believe in the rightness or even the justice of hell. The extreme cases, though, help us here. And and they help us because we're sinful. And so we don't think we or lots of the really nice, friendly people we know would ever deserve that. But just take those worst examples of moral evil. I, I don't know, take your Hitlers, take your serial killers. We say sometimes prison is too good for them. Sometimes when they escape the court of law, maybe they hide away or they end themselves. And we think or say they didn't really get what they deserved. Death isn't good enough for them. And then we think, but God will deal with them. And we take some comfort in that. There will be justice, though they didn't, nobody, their victims didn't get justice on this earth. What are we saying? We're acknowledging the truth. God will deal. God will deal, though, with all of us. And we are all murderers, according to Jesus. By hand or heart or mouth. Don't you see why you need Jesus then? To bear the judgment of God for you and in your place upon the cross. Don't you see why you need to be forgiven by God? And go to him. Trust in Jesus. He'll save you from your sins. That's why he came. To seek and to save the lost. Now thirdly. In the passage Jesus applies what he's saying. He instructs his disciples how then to love others. Verses 23 to 26. What's needed, he says, is reconciliation. Go to your brother. Be reconciled to your brother. In other words, when the law forbids something, you can't commit murder. The law is uh, commanding its opposite. Its opposite is required. Don't murder. Be reconciled. Don't hate love. Right? Notice then how... Uh, with regard to reconciliation, how surprising and necessary and urgent and humbling it is. Those four things as we close. Notice how surprising it is here. What Jesus says is not what we would have expected. He's been speaking of our anger and our nasty words. You'd expect them then to say at verse 23. So if you're at the altar and you remember you have something against your brother. He's made you mad. Go to him and resolve it. But what he says, if your brother has something against you, go to him. We aren't just to avoid a murderous heart in ourselves. We are, he says, to help our brothers and sisters 
remove their murderous disposition against us. Not just resolve your anger towards them, help them resolve their anger towards you, Jesus says. If we're the offender, if we're the cause, it's not enough to say, they've got to make the first move. I mean, if they're mad, they should tell me about it. Jesus says, you make the first move. You go and work it out. You've heard of IQ, intelligence quotient, some kind of measure of intellectual knowledge, skill, ability, aptitude, whatever. Have you heard of EQ or EI, intelligence quotient, uh, emotional quotient, um, emotional intelligence? It's something we're talking about more now. It's about emotional maturity. Uh, The maturity to know that you have offended another, that they are angry with you, and instead of hiding from them, ignoring them, hoping they'll get over it or the issue will resolve itself, you actually go to them to seek resolution with them. Even if you think the issue is trivial and they're all bent out of shape over nothing, even if they're wrong about you and it's just a misunderstanding. Don't say, oh, well, they'll get over it. No, Jesus says, go to them. Reconcile them. Love them. That's emotional maturity at some level. Christian maturity. Jesus wants to build that into us. Um, Parents, let me speak to you for a moment. The Apostle Paul says, Ephesians 6, after he tells children to obey their parents, he says, parents, fathers, don't, don't exasperate your children. Don't provoke them to anger, to wrath. Don't push them to resent you. That would be wrong. He also says in the prior chapter, don't let the sun go down on your anger. As a parent, you may need, as the hopefully more emotionally mature one, in Christ at least, You need to go to your children and help them so the sun doesn't go down on their anger against you. Love means you take the first step when you're angry. Or you provoke their anger. Surprising the way Jesus puts it. Notice also how necessary it is. Verse 23. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Jesus speaks in the language of the people of his day. The temple's still around. People are still coming to offer animal sacrifices and offerings at the altar. In the Old Testament language of that day, Jesus is saying obedience is more important than sacrifice. Now, with Christ's death on the altar of the cross, we have no more altars of sacrifice. We have a table of communion. But we do gather to offer a sacrifice of praise says the writer of hebrews we do bring gifts of gratitude in support of the lord's work we do meet together at a table to remember the death of christ and rejoice and jesus is saying make things right with those you have wronged as part of your worship of god even before you come here publicly work it out with Individuals privately. Without that working it out out there, your worship here rings hollow. It's a kind of fraud. 
It may be you're actually saying to yourself, as so many of us do, well, I'll do this and substitute for that. Boy, when I have been mean or lazy or wrong at home, I can do dishes like nobody's business. And I'm, all I'm doing is works righteousness, substituting a good deed for a bad and not really dealing with me and what I've done wrong. God is saying, look, don't take that approach to my worship. I don't really want your sacrifices and your offerings. I want your life repentant and loving. How can you come here and say you love your heavenly father while you hate his earthly images? People are made in his image. He calls you to reconcile as far as it is up to you. You are to try. Some of you have worked really hard in a godly way with people that are on the outs with you. You've sought to reconcile. You've offered. And they simply won't. Reconciliation is a two-way street. You can't make somebody do what they're unwilling to do. If, it, if it's possible, says Paul in Romans 12, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. So God is clearly more interested in our obedience than our sacrifices. He's more interested in us being Christians the other six days of the week than just the seventh day of the week. Remember what Peter said to husbands? 1 Peter chapter 3. He says, show honor to your wives so that your prayers may not be hindered. What principle is he basing that on? We're not to dishonor the wife God gave us to help us and then turn around and expect the Lord to answer our prayers for help when we've dishonored the help that he has already given us, right? God's interested in how we treat one another. Not just how we worship him. So Jesus says, leave worship, go. I mean, if you had to get up during the sermon, there would be nothing wrong with that. You might, could wait. Just, you know, we spent a lot of time on these things. But if you got to go, go, says Jesus. Be reconciled. It's necessary. Notice how urgent it is. Verse 25, he turns to law court ideas. Come to terms with your accuser while you're going with him to court. The accuser here, literally an adversary in a lawsuit. While on your way, you're still arguing. Settle it now, Jesus says. Lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you'll never get out until you've paid the last penny. In other words, if you don't reconcile before you meet the judge and jury, you don't know how badly it will turn out. Once you get to court, there's no turning back. Justice will require an exact accounting of the jury's decision and the judge's uh, declaration. Better to deal with it quickly. It's wisdom. It's urgent. Before things go south and become unrepairable. Don't wait, is what he's saying. Animosity is a time bomb. Brooding over... Injuries breeds resentment, which breeds bitterness, which breeds bitterness. I mean, this is how the Hatfields and the McCoys carried on a multi-generational feud. How different it would have been if the first parties had gone quickly to one another. You wouldn't have had to wait over 100 years to see them on family feud 
playing the game of the Hatfield and the McCoys feud, which those families really did. And the team that won three to two had to get a bonus at the end because the other team actually made more money and they had to make it equal plus a dollar to the winner because, you know, it was a long feud, right? That's just an aside. Jesus is saying we need to be sensitive to the evil of letting things fester between us and others. And we need to learn to keep short accounts with one another. Go quickly. Otherwise, we might be tempted to put their offenses in our bag, drag them around with us, open that bag, and pull them out when it suits our purpose to tear them down. And then what are we doing? We're just repaying evil for evil. And so what have we really done? We haven't resolved our issue. We just smothered our anger and let it seethe underneath for a little while. All the while it eats at us. All the while it hinders our enjoyment of one another. And eventually then we explode. Or we walk out. Don't let it get to that point, Jesus says. Don't let it get to where the last penny of justice has got to be paid by you. Settle things quickly. It's urgent. And so then do you see how humbling this is, right? The first step toward reconciliation, acknowledge the offense that makes at least one of you angry. Own it. We've got to humble ourselves to seek the good of a person who may have hurt us. How humbling to say, I've been angry. I've been distant from you. I've been angry with you and I've been holding it against you. It means you've got to die to yourself. Die to your rights. Die to your right for justice so that you can give them mercy. You can release them and free them and forgive them. Die to your pride and admit you're unjustly angry, unduly angry, disproportionately angry, or you've been holding on to your anger and not dealing with it, and so it's standing in the way of relationship. How humbling. And how humbling to admit you're the one, not only who offended, where you have to say, I was wrong and I'm sorry, I provoked you, but how humbling to say, I'm sorry, I offended. Please forgive me. We've got to die to ourselves in our pride. If you're going to love them and help them resolve their anger towards you. And Jesus is calling for that here. See, do you see why this doesn't, this isn't about becoming a Christian. The cross has got to make you a Christian. The Holy Spirit's work has got to make you a Christian. The grace of God has got to make you a Christian. Only God can work these things in you. And he does it by his grace and by his spirit. But having become a Christian, this is a kind of, test of our discipleship it's a it's it's the path of our discipleship are we following jesus we should ask i'm not forgiven because i seek reconciliation but i am forgiven that i might seek reconciliation as god did with me may the lord help us to be more like him let's pray Father, you know all the bumps and bruises we have incurred and we have given. And you know all the sorrows of broken relationship. You know all the anger, the frustration. You also know all the pride and self-righteousness, the bitterness. You know it all. Thank you that when we were 
your enemy, you reconciled us to you by the death of your son. Teach our hearts to so love others that we would seek to be reconciled with them. Make it so. Give us courage to that end. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing.